Hello and welcome to the Tool Assisted Podcast. Today is the 20th of October 2019 and this is your host, The 8-Bit Beast. In this episode, we're going to be talking about Sonic the Hedgehog on the Sega Master System. And this episode is a little bit different because I actually Taz this game, so it's just going to be me. I have a commentary of the Taz on my YouTube and the submission text goes into a lot of detail about what I actually do. So the majority of this episode is just me really wanting to gush about nostalgia of the Sega Master System growing up in the 90s and early 2000s, rather than getting super in-depth with the Taz. If you would like to hear specifically about the Taz and speedrunning, I'll leave a time link in the description so that you can check that out if you don't want to hear me talk about how great it was to grow up with this game. First off, I should address that you may notice that I haven't done any episodes in a while. Uh, This is mainly due to me actually getting a full-time job teaching math and science, so I've been pretty, pretty busy lately, and part of the job involved me moving about five hours away from where I was actually living before, so it's been a very, very big change, but it's been for the better and I'm feeling pretty happy about it so far. The one downside is though having less time to do stuff like this, but I think It'll be less quantity, but more quality, hopefully. Without further ado, let's get started. So, back in 1996, I was born, and my parents had a Sega Master System. This is probably foreign to a lot of listeners, because if you grew up in somewhere like America, the Sega Master System wasn't very common. But in Australia, Sega was really what everyone was playing in the 90s. Um, I actually didn't see a NES cartridge until I was about 15 years old. That's how uncommon it was for us. But anyway, my parents had this master system and somehow we got our hands on a Mega Drive. In about, maybe when I was 2 or 3, so 98, 99, somewhere around there, we got our N64. And I'm really nostalgic for Banjo-Kazooie, Donkey Kong 64, Diddy Kong Racing, stuff like that. But I do vaguely remember a time where we only had the Sega Master System and Mega Drive. So this sort of nostalgic period is what I want to focus on in this episode. And really about kind of growing up with the Sega. But it was a bit later than what a lot of people would have grown up with the Sega. So, I mean, I was born in 1996. The Nintendo 64 was already out. But I actually played quite a lot of Sega growing up. Partially due to influence from my parents, but partially I just loved the system, even though I had these 3D games. I mean, I had an N64 from quite young and a PS2 from quite young, but um, there was just something about these 2D games on the Sega that I kept coming back to, and I really was very fond of the system all through up until now. So, um, my earliest memories of the game was... Basically, I would play a bit of Green Hill Zone, but I was probably 3, 4, 5 years old. And I could never, ever finish it. Never, ever. Sonic 1 or Sonic 2 on the Genesis I had, I couldn't finish either of them. So my poor mother, what I used to do was say, Mum, can you beat Sonic 1 for me? And she would have to sit down and then play through all of Sonic 1 on the Master System because I wanted to see the end of the game. Um, I must have forgotten what the credits actually looked like because I made her do this so many times. She must be an expert at the game by now. But that was lovely. So my earliest memories was actually sitting there watching her play through the game. And it wasn't like you had YouTube back in those days. You couldn't just look up playthroughs. So this was the only way I knew how the game went. Also, my brother 
would have played it with me quite a bit, but he was only two years older than me, so I think we both would have struggled a bit. Um, the interesting thing about this is I mentioned that we had a Sega Mega Drive, or Sega Genesis, it was called the Mega Drive in Australia, um, and I had Sonic 1 on the Master System, but Sonic 2 on the Mega Drive, so back when I was a young lad, I thought that this was just how it went. I didn't know that Sonic 1 on the Mega Drive existed, and I didn't know that Sonic 2 on the Master System existed. So I remember, um, for those Australian listeners, going into Cashies one day when I was probably 8 or 9, that's cash converters, and I saw a copy of Sonic 2 on the Master System, and it blew my mind. And all I really remember about that is I was wondering what uh, Sky Chase Zone would have looked like on Sonic 2 on the Master System. Of course, not realizing that it didn't have Sky Chase Zone. But yeah, so that really blew my mind, and I didn't know that Sonic 3 existed at all. Um, so yeah. Also with Sonic 2, there was a lot of nostalgia, because I would just play around with the debug mode. I couldn't beat the game till I was quite a bit older, but um, me and my brother would play around with debug mode, messing around with transform boxes in Death Egg Zone, and uh, we had like this book full of codes, or cheat codes, and one of them was a Game Genie code for Hidden Palace Zone, so... Well, we didn't realize at the time it was a Game Genie code, so we were trying to put it into the sound test, and then, well, there wasn't enough numbers in the sound test to input it, so eventually we thought for some reason that it was only the Japanese version of Sonic 2 that the code would have worked on, and then since then I always had wanted to go to Japan, pick up a copy of Sonic 2 there and get Hidden Palace Zone, me not knowing that Hidden Palace Zone was just a buggy mess in all versions of the game. But it's just back in this time where really you couldn't look up stuff. What we must have done is looked it up maybe at our aunt or uncle's house and printed out all these cheat codes, but we couldn't go back again then to check them. And people were trolls back in those days. There were plenty of codes for like Goku and Super Smash Brothers and stuff. But anyway, there's just so many things about Sonic 1 on the Master System specifically that I loved. And it was such a great game, I think because... Partially because the levels were small enough that I really got a feel of how, like, everything in the game. I specifically remember um, Green Hill 2. I would always get all the rings in there when I was very young, and I always knew there were 98 rings, and then that would bring me to a special stage. And I remember thinking, like, as a very young kid, oh, you need 98 rings to get to a special stage, and then going through the process of figuring out how all that worked was really fascinating. I never thought to just read the manual, but at that point, I don't know how well I would have read it. And I know that a lot of people probably aren't particularly fond for uh, Sonic 1 on the Master System, and there's a few reasons for that, but I guess one of the main reasons is just the Master System's popularity. Um, in Australia and I guess Brazil it was very popular, but um, places like America not so much. But if you actually sit down and play Sonic 1 on the Master System, that game is so good. Like, especially one thing that I'll point out is the music. In that game you've just got classic tracks like um, Bridge Zone is great, and then Jungle Zone like, Jungle Zone music is just fantastic. Not only that, but Jungle Zone itself is designed so well. It really got me into the idea of, like, having a really good 
forest level in video games. So, like, for me, Jungle Zone was really... I want to say a little bit mysterious, like, fairy tale and all that stuff. Even though that probably wasn't their intention. That Jungle Zone did that for me, and so did the game Lord of the Sword on the Master System. That has a really good forest stage in it as well. So, just little things like that. And, as I said, the jungle music was amazing. And, um... Something else about the jungle music is there's a band in, I think it's a New Zealand band, Frente, Frente, and they have a song that sounds quite a bit like the Jungle Zone music. I remember uh, when I was doing my very first Taz of Sonic, before I discovered podcasts, because, well, now I listen to podcasts when I do Tazzing, but um, I would listen to music and I would stream Tazzing, and I remember basically having uh, Accidentally Kelly Street by Frente on repeat when I was Tazzing Jungle Zone. Um, so yeah, I got really into that. And another great bit of music from Sonic 1 is uh, Sky Base Zone. So there's this little track from Sky Base 2. It is a ripper of a song. You only hear it for like seven seconds in the Taz, but my goodness, whoever did the music for this game is just a genius. And not only the music, but just the design and overall goodness of the game is like if you haven't tried sonic one on the master system you gotta do it and i feel pretty lucky because i feel like out of the two sonic ones the master system is better and out of the two sonic twos the genesis mega drive version is better of course those were the ones i had growing up so there might be a little bit of bias there but coming back just like a few more stories i guess about me growing up with this game um i distinctly remember uh, so we would always have these rumors, me and my brother, about what you could do in games. This was partly the culture of the internet and stuff, people spreading around false stuff. But there was one specific one in Sonic 1 on the Master System. And what it was is in Green Hill Zone 3, you get down to this area where there's this extra life. And then there's this really big long line of spikes. And if you try and jump over it like you just see more and more spikes and of course you're jumping into spikes so you die but i remember my brother telling me that um there was going to be knuckles at the end of those spikes and then he would teach you how to glide and then you could glide through all of sonic one um so there were just like lots of little fun things like that like rumors that we would spread around between each other and i remember when we got sonic and knuckles the cartridge and we had and adapted to get uh, from Mega Drive to Master System. I remember making like a tower of cartridges that it went Sonic and Knuckles, then the Master System converted, then Sonic 1 on the Master System. And I was just really hoping that that rumor would actually come true. It didn't, the game didn't even boot. But that was just another fun thing you could do with the technology back then. And um, even these days, now that I'm a bit older and I've got more stuff, I do that same stack, but with like a Game Genie before Sonic & Knuckles, so there's like four cartridges high. But yeah, we just did lots of stuff like that. I specifically remember another one that uh, my brother had come up with, is that he told me that uh, it was something in Super Mario 64, and he said that you had to jump behind the waterfall in the castle courtyard or something. And we had heaps of rumors like that, also about Banjo-Kazooie, like getting behind the painting in Grunty's lair and um, getting behind that door in the beauty machine room. 
and especially probably the biggest one in Banjo Kazooie was uh, in the room where you open treasure trove of Coven Clankers. There's this hole in the roof, and we would always think like, "Oh, what happens when you get up that hole?" And we'd try all these crazy things to get up through that hole. Eventually, getting the action replay, which is like a game shark, but in Australia, we moon jumped up through that hole. There was nothing there, but. Um, those games were really mysterious growing up and that was part of what intrigued me about them and just exploring every little inch of those games and you could do that because the games were smaller and you'd only get one game a year or something well maybe two, one for Christmas, one for your birthday so you really explored every inch and appreciated that and it was really quite a good time to be growing up so another particular memory I have and Probably what gets us into speedrunning specifically of this game is uh, going up to our grandma and grandpa's place. And we'd have a couple of cousins. I don't know exactly how the numbers worked out. I suppose we only had three controllers for N64. Because there'd be one of us, there'd be three of us playing Super Smash Brothers 64. Um, so me, my brother, and our two cousins. There'd be three of us playing that. And then the other person would be playing Sega Master System. So we'd be playing either the Ninja or Alex Kidd Miracle World. So that was a really fun memory. And um, another particular mem memory I have at my grandma and grandpa's um, is uh, me and my brother going up there. Just us two, not our cousins this time. But we had this box of Master System games. And I think grandpa had just fixed our Master System for us. Something had gone wrong with it. But I distinctly remember on that trip playing Psycho Fox with my brother. And uh, one of us would be on the floor, we'd be the pause button, and then the other person would be playing the game and we'd take turns at that. And it was just a really good time, just sitting there playing Master System, spending time with Grandma and Grandpa. It was good stuff. But that particular trip is probably where my journey speedrunning this game began. Because I don't know what my brother was doing. I think he was sleeping in or something. But I had basically woken up pretty early, and I thought, I'm going to play Sonic 1. So I did, and I beat it. And then I thought, I'm going to play Sonic 1 again, and then I beat it. And then I thought, I'm going to do it again, but with all the Chaos Emeralds, and I did, and I beat it. And then basically what I did was I just kept playing it over and over and over, alternating between getting Chaos Emeralds and not getting Chaos Emeralds. And I must have done this probably five or six times before my brother woke up. And I think even after he woke up, we kept going doing that. And that's what really got me into just thinking like, wow, I can actually beat this game heaps of times. So eventually what I did was I started thinking, well, like how fast can I beat it? And speedrunning, like I didn't have internet access, so I didn't really know about speedrunning. I'd done similar things trying to beat Banjo-Kazooie pretty fast, but never as many times as I'd done Sonic 1, just because Sonic 1 was short. So pretty much what I was doing at the time was just looking at the clock when I would start a run. This was after we got back from Grandma and Grandpa's. I'd look at the clock when I started a run, then look at the clock when I ended, and then I'd be like, well, I beat it in you know, 28 minutes or something, which for the time was pretty good, especially on PAL. Um, at one point we had a VCR machine and so basically I'd get this VHS tape and I'd put it in and 
the machine could record whatever was on your TV. What I didn't realize when I was that young is that that meant it could record the output from the Sega. So that's just what I did. So basically, um, I did... I didn't do very many recordings. I did a few ones that kind of failed. But I remember I just sat down and I was like, right, I'm going to do this really good run of Sonic 1. And I did. And, like, I remember looking back on it and there wasn't really many mistakes in it. It was really, really, really solid run. And I basically got this really clean VHS recording. And I think by that point, I knew that speedrunning was a thing. And we had been, like, going to the library and using the internet at the library. And I would go there and I would download SDA runs. I remember, like, we'd go to the library once per week. And the internet there was so slow and so limited that basically I I remember wanting this segmented Pokemon Gold speedrun from SDA. And I remember every week I would get download the video of one segment and then come home and watch it. But yeah, so basically the internet was so bad that it was like one eight minute Pokemon segment video per week I could get. But I think I did vaguely know that Sonic Speedrunning existed. I think a lot of it at that time was on the Game Gear though. But yeah, so that's that's basically what... I did is I would record runs and I had these wild ideas of like sending off my VHS tape to whoever ran SDA like because I didn't even know how you would go about properly capturing something back in well that would have been 2005 or something like that maybe 2006 so yeah it was pretty early times and um, I had that VHS for quite a while I, I don't have it anymore but I really wish that I did because it would have been fascinating to see kind of speedrun level determination, but just without the communication with any of the community. And there wouldn't have been a community at that point. But yeah, so that's my earliest serious memory that I remember. And then moving on from that, I got a bit more precise because I would have had a mobile phone uh, after that, probably 2009, 2010-ish. And then I would use my phone timer to do runs. Um, that got pretty interesting. And I did do a few really good runs. I distinctly remember having one in like the low 20s. And you have to remember this would have been on PAL because I live in Australia. Now, PAL and NGSC, for newer games, they compensate. But with that game, Sonic 1, and some like some old NES games and stuff like Metroid, and basically all the Master System games, uh, because it runs at 50 frames a second rather than 60 like it actually runs that much slower so if you have an NTSC console it'll run 1.2 times as fast like it'll actually be that much faster um as a result of this though I feel like yes PAL ran quite a bit slower but I think that's what helped to make the game so popular in Australia and well not Brazil because Brazil was NTSC but in Australia I think so this game has a lot of issue with lag. NTSC version has a lot of lag. Not like unplayable. It's just like you notice it. So I think because it's PAL and it's a lower frame rate, the system's under less strain. And like, yes, it runs slower, 
but it's consistently at 50, whereas NTSC will run at like 60 most of the time, but the frame rate will drop when it lags. Um, that's just me from my experience. I'm not super uh, a super expert on PAL and NTSC for this game because NTSC is just always faster, so I never touch PAL now. But eventually it came to the point where I was, I think, about 20, and I had moved out of home, and I had the ability to buy things on eBay, a little bit of savings, so I thought, you know what, I'm going to take the plunge, and I'm going to buy myself an NTSC Sega Genesis. So that's exactly what I did, and it was actually pretty cheap. I got it on eBay. I think the whole thing with shipping was less than 100 which seems like a lot for a Sega, but you got to remember shipping is a lot to Australia. And I jerry-rigged some solution with cables because getting NTSC stuff to run in Australia is a massive pain with all the power set up with the cables because um, we have different power outlets. So I think it was some master system cable that just happened to have the same voltage or whatever you need for NTSC stuff and it would go into the back of the Genesis that I got and I actually still have this Genesis today I use it for whenever I speedrun stuff on Sega and that's Genesis or Master System games because I still have that adapter cartridge um, and the beautiful thing about Master System is basically all the games or most of them are the same between regions so like literally the same ROM so I can plug in my PAL Sonic 1 with the PAL Master System adapter and play it on my US Genesis perfectly. Um, funny thing about this game as well is that the NTSC version is incredibly rare and I think it's worth something like $500, whereas any other version you would just pick up for 10 or 20 bucks. Uh, I think because the Master System, I think this was the last US Master System game, so they didn't make very many. And the cartridge for NTSC is identical. The only reason that this game is so expensive, like the only difference, is this one sticker barcode-y thing on the box. Like, that's it. There's one expensive sticker. But yeah, so it's actually, I think, the most expensive Master System game, if I'm not mistaken, is US Sonic 1. So that's another fun bit of trivia. But anyway, so I think... Yeah, the less lag is why it would have been pretty popular over here. I think it was built into some consoles in Europe. I'm not 100% sure. But, yeah, it's just great. So, anyway, back to the NTSC console. I got that, and I ended up doing some runs of this. And I got, like, good at it, RTA. Uh, so, after I got NTSC, first thing I did was I did this run, and... I have it up on my YouTube channel, um, the same YouTube channel that this video will be up on. And it was years and years and years ago. And I said, I think the title of the video was The Switch to NTSC, Not Just a Palcebo. And basically I had done this run and it was really bad, but I was just saving so much time over my PAL splits that I got this massive PB swapping to NTSC because it was literally like 1.2 times faster. Anyway, um, so that gave me the confidence to do it. At that point, I had a capture card um, that my brother had gotten me for my birthday, and I'd already been doing runs of something. No, I think this might have been one of my earlier runs that I'd actually done. I don't think I'd done much RTA at this point, but 
basically I was able to capture this and I thought, you know what, I'm actually going to take this seriously. If I remember correctly, there were a few people on the leaderboards at that point. The guy at the front of the leaderboards was, now I'm never good at pronouncing this, but it's M-A-M-A-N, Maman, Mammon, something along those lines. And he's this French runner who's like amazing at the game, especially for the time. And he's still really into it and into a lot of the 8-bit Sonic stuff. Um, he was really showing me how to play the game good, basically, with his run. And there was Adam AK did a run at GDQ, and he did that on WeVC, which is... WeVC still lags for this game, so it's essentially the same. I don't know a whole lot about the differences, though. But basically, it's the same. I couldn't play on WeVC because we get the PAL version on our Wii's. And it's very hard to get the NTSC version to run. And you'd have to do crazy homebrew stuff. But anyway, um, so eventually, and it's been a very long time, so I don't remember the exact timeline. But I have had the RTA record on this game before. I'm pretty sure I only had it for a few weeks. My man ended up getting it back, and he was really excited about it. But, like, I did have it, and I had a pretty good RTA career for this game. Uh, my current PB, had, it was an amazing run, but then I had this one really, really stupid death where, like, basically, I was walking and I got into a roll, so I was going to lose a little bit of time. So I'm like, oh, no, this is really bad. So I jumped out of the roll, but what I didn't realize was that right above me was this flame, which then killed me because I had no rings. So that cost me like 20 seconds or something. And that's my current PB because the run was just so good that I couldn't top it even with that depth. Well, I probably could, but I didn't feel like it. And as I've talked about a bit more, like as I've talked about on this podcast, uh, I don't get, well, I do get super into RTA, but I try and stop myself because... I'm more interested in what could be done rather than what my hands can do. So at that point, I sort of left it. And I think if I wanted to get back into Sonic 1 Master System, it would be really difficult because the runners since then have taken it so far. And like people like Fozon even pushed it to a whole new level, doing crazy stuff in Jungle 1 he did. And yeah, it's just ridiculous what they do now. So I was, I was doing some pretty crazy stuff, especially for the time that my PBs were, but they, they've just pushed it so much further RTA now. And my Tazzers have helped them do that, but yeah, I, I don't think I'll be getting world record back anytime soon, especially since I prefer the feeling of Tazzing because yeah. Um, Frozon has the record now and yeah, I haven't touched the game since a year ago and I, I'm off and on with it, but I'm probably like, uh, 48 seconds behind him. I am. So my summer best probably isn't even lower than what he was doing, but there are some crazy RTA things you can do. Like for example, in bridge zone, you can kind of take the gamble on what side Robotnik's going to come up on. And uh, if you do that, you can save maybe two seconds. But if you fail that, then you die. So it's pretty bad. Um, anyway, I just wanted to really highlight the fantastic community. It's grown so much since I first uh, became a part of it. 
and the Discord is always really active and positive when whenever you're talking about sciencey stuff with this game or any of the eight bit Sonic games. Uh, the Discord is really good to talk to and really positive and just knows a lot about the game and they're fascinated about how to go fast, basically. So, yeah, the community for this game and 8-Bit Sonic and Sonic in general is just really good. So that's that's my RTA journey with Sonic 1. And this is about the point where I can really stop talking about my personal growing up and experience with RTA and get really into the Taz stuff. So when I joined the community, there was one Taz and it was of the Game Gear version and it was by someone called S Grunt. That was a really good Taz and it was really intimidating to me. I always said that my two favorite games are Sonic the Hedgehog for the Master System and Banjo-Kazooie. And when I found out about Tazzing, it seemed like the obvious choice. But I sort of looked at the Game Gear version, and I was still of the mindset that, like, oh, Tazzers are just these superhuman people who do crazy stuff. I could never match that. And there's already a Taz there, and all the Tazzers on the side are perfect, so how could I ever be faster? So there's already a Taz of Sonic. I wish it was a Taz of the Master System version, but we're stuck with the GG version. So I'll just have to deal with it and I'll Taz other stuff. So I did. I did go and Taz other stuff. And I Tazzed, I think, I think it was three games before I actually came back and Taz Sonic 1. Being like one of my favorite games, that is a really long time to go before trying out Tazzing it. But basically, so I guess I should talk a little bit about the Game Gear differences. There are differences all over the place. But for Game Gear for me... I mean, I did play a bit of the Game Gear version because I had Sonic Mega Collection Plus on the PS2 that had the Game Gear version in it, as well as, like, that's how I played Sonic 3 for the first time. But basically, like, it it just felt off compared to the Master System version. And I think this is partially because of the screen crunch. You don't have a lot of screen to play with, so you can't really see what's coming up. And it just felt smaller and cheaper and just not good. And the bonus screens were longer because you got like way too much score. And growing up with the Master System version, like I liked that one, and this was just, just, just a little bit off. So I'm not super keen on the Game Gear version. But these days, because I love the game so much, having the Game Gear version there as kind of like a separate category is really good because it gets me to explore the game even further than if I just had normal Master System. So it, it has been good in that sense, because I can keep looking into this game and keep making Tazzers and stuff. But yeah, um, Game, Game Gear, I guess, for those who don't know, is Sega's shot at a portable console, so it's basically like a portable Master System. And it's not a remake, like there are glitches that are very low level that work the same between the two. So they've definitely done some like direct code porting. So I had I saw this Game Gear Taz. Basically, I then picked up the Master System version. I'm like, well, they've got a Game Gear Taz. And my brain still thought all Tazes on the site were perfect. So I thought, well, I can't obsolete that because it's got to be perfect. So I'll do a Master System Taz. 
And then I did a level on the master system and I realized that I sucked at tazzing because I did it. And like, there was, there are a few people who had tried to do tazzes of the master system version, but they weren't published on Taz videos. So I really closely compared it to those tazzes, looking at game time and stuff. And I also compared it to some RTA speedruns. And I just wasn't getting, like, sometimes they were ahead of me. Oftentimes I was ahead of them in the first level because I understood the basic tech in Sonic 1. But yeah, they just kept getting ahead sometimes. And I'm thinking like, whoa, what's going on here? And it's, it's hard to say looking back then why that was. But now I have a really good understanding of what to do. And I'm confident that my tazzes of that game are, if not optimal, really close to optimal. And it would be unlikely to be beaten by RTA or another Taz, unless that person was either really experienced at Tazzing or knew a lot about the game. Um, with the slight modification of talking about lag, because lag is crazy hard to optimize. But yeah, basically I sucked. Um, but... It was at that point where I really started doing a whole bunch of research and I found out all this stuff about tazzing this game. And I kind of had originally brushed off that stuff because I'm like, oh, all, the, all that tech, that's just Game Gear stuff. My Sacred Master System version wouldn't get broken like that because all the tazzes that I've seen just on YouTube don't do that. But eventually I kind of bit the bullet I learned how to actually get good at like RAM watch and stuff and watching my position and speed. And um, I basically learned how to be a good Tazzer. And I learned this tech from the Game Gear and it turns out it's actually useful in Master System. And it sort of got me more comfortable with Hex and more comfortable with all that stuff. And I'm a much better Tazzer for doing it. So I probably did Green Hill 1 probably like four or five times before I was actually happy with it. And so I guess in that level, there are well, three main bits of tech that you want to know. First, and it's on a macro level, is in RTA, uh, rolling speeds you up if you're going down a hill. So rolling, if you're on flat ground, will slow you down. But if you're going down a hill, and it's been a while since I've tazzed this, but I don't think you have to hold right, but I always hold right, it'll speed you up. Also, if you roll off a ledge and you're going through the air and you hold right and you don't hold down, it'll speed you up as well. And that gets you past the normal speed cap that something normally has. So I knew that and I was already doing that in Taz's. What really got me to do better was this thing called a speed cap misalignment or speed cap abuse. It's basically like when you're about to hit Sonic's speed cap you you're approaching it with your speed you have one frame where you go over the speed cap and then if you keep holding if you're moving right if you keep holding right then sonic snaps back to the speed cap but instead if you let go of right you decelerate a bit under the speed cap and then you could press right again to go back over the speed cap so what you can actually do is if you keep alternating between pressing right and letting go of right over and over and over, you go through this cycle of going a little bit over the speed cap, then dropping under it, then going a little bit over, then dropping under it, without ever actually triggering you hitting the speed cap. 
And basically, your acceleration and deceleration is in multiples of one zero in hex, which is basically one sixteenth of a pixel. So you hover around the value. So your speed cap is three zero zero. So you hover between three zero C and two F C. So if you average those two out, you're going at three zero four and your speed cap is three zero zero. So you're going a tiny bit over the speed cap. And that tech doesn't save heaps of time, probably maybe a few frames over the level, but it was just learning about that stuff that really opened my eyes. And I don't want to get super into the tech and super into in-depth level analysis in this podcast because I really want to, like, I have a commentary video of my current TAS that explains that and a submission text that explains that. So I don't need to, but I do want to talk about my journey through TASing it and when I discovered all these things and kind of like how I went about it. So this was my very first Sonic TAS. So I basically went through, did all the stuff, found out some new things. There's also another glitch where if you're going left and you alternate between rolling and breaking your roll, when you break a roll, Sonic tries to decelerate, but that deceleration is always applied to the left. So it actually speeds you up to the left if you're moving left. So you roll, you break your roll, you roll, you break your roll. And Sonic just does crazy speed up to the left. That's another one of the tech. Those are like the three main things that I learned from the original Game Gear Taz by s Grunt. It was a great Taz for its time, especially on Diga. And you could see that they were working on it like quite hard based on the forum post. Now always going back and trying levels again and again and again. The thing about that Taz is that it focused on game time. And in this game is weird because game time really sucks. Basically at the end of the level, you hit the signpost and depending on how fast you hit the signpost, it'll like fly up in the air, either really high if you hit it really fast or really low if you don't. So, If you're going for the lowest time, you want to slow down Sonic so that he's basically stopped when he hits the signpost. And that's a personal choice whether you would do that or not, but I wanted to slow down for the signpost because, for example, in the first level, Sonic's off the screen because of the hill rolly glitchy thing. Um, Sonic's off the screen for a really long time and the signpost doesn't load until the screen catches up. So if you actually go and look at the uh, original Game Gear Taz, what that will do is when the screen catches up, Sonic is basically running through the signpost at full speed. So it flies up in the air and takes ages. But what you can do without even losing any time at all in in in-game time is you can basically just, when you're off the screen, wait exactly where the signpost is while Sonic is still and then the level will end really quick. So that was an example there of where, like, yes, Escrunt was optimizing for in-game time, but they could have had a lower real-time with the same in-game time. So I thought, oh, that's a, I don't like that. So that was when I started thinking, like, well, maybe I should be thinking about real-time. With Sonic games, you have the problem with a time bonus because the faster you beat a level the bigger a time bonus you get so i think in this game if i'm not mistaken anything below 30 seconds is a 30,000 time bonus and each hundred points takes a frame to tick off so if you do the math it works out that if you're anywhere between 
I want to say around 27 seconds and 30 seconds. It's better to wait until 30 seconds so that you get a lower time bonus so that everything's faster. Now, I don't do that because that's silly. But what we eventually decided on was a metric called real-time minus time bonus, which is basically you add up the whole real-time of the run and you just take away the bit where your score's ticking down. And that's... Uh, a lot of the community has gone towards that. And, like, I think some of the Genesis games have as well. Obviously, like, I don't have much to do with the speed scene for the Genesis games, but I like to think that I played a tiny, tiny little part in transitioning the community over to that timing method because my Taz was one of the first things that actually used that timing method. Another um, thing about this game is, yes, there's a lot of lag. Uh, the game time doesn't tick up during lag, so basically when Escrunt was making their Taz, they had no incentive to reduce lag at all. Whereas I thought, well, i got to reduce lag, especially in the auto-scrollers where you're always going to get the same game time. So why not actually, like, reduce the lag while you're doing that? And if I were to make an actual Taz for lowest game times, it would be really, really hard, because you'd have to do all this weird stuff managing lag, and there are some levels where lag behaves really weirdly with the game time. Um, I think, and I'm not 100% sure on this, but I think you can create lag in... Because uh, Act 3 of each level behaves really weirdly with lag. I think if you create lag during Robotnik fights, because they're basically auto-scrollers, if you create lag there, Robotnik doesn't slow down, but the game time does. Now, I could be really, really, really wrong on this. But if that was the case, and it might be, then you would basically be trying to create as much lag as possible in those fights to lower your game time. And that would be, like, uh, really weird and really hard to optimize. So, yeah, I made the decision for RTA minus time bonus. Anyway, moving on. Um, bridge 1 had a lot of rolling. Bridge 2 in this game sucks because it's an auto-scroller, and it probably really hurts the game as a speed game because, like, Three, four minutes into the run, you hit with a two-minute auto-scroller. So this game really sucks to run uh, for that respect. And I actually made a hack of this game where that level doesn't auto-scroll. And, um, like, I actually prefer to play that quite a lot rather than the vanilla version. But you can't speedrun on that version. Well, I mean, you could, but there'd be no community around it. But, yeah, so Bridge 2 is really unfortunate. But moving on, I was just making my way through the Taz, and basically, I'd gotten up to Labyrinth Zone 2. This is the fourth zone. Uh, second act. And uh, I was thinking about the, the, the glitch that let you get a lot of speed to the left, basically. And I was thinking, like, what happens if you go off the left side of the screen? Basically, what I did was I froze my speed going to the left, like, I, I set it to a really high value left, and before I knew it, I think I first did this in Green Hill 3, Sonic went off the left side of the screen, he came out of the right side of the level. It's crazy. And for those familiar with it, it's like, you're basically going into minus coordinates, which the game interprets as really big positive coordinates. And yeah. 
there's basically this tiny little wall on the left side of the screen that Sonic can't get past. But if he's going fast enough, it's like the wall is three times thicker than the amount that you would walk in a frame at full walking speed. So full walking speed is a velocity of three. You need a velocity of nine to break this wall, but you need to be at the perfect position. So you need to be almost touching the wall on one frame and then getting as far into it as you can the next frame. So basically I was playing around with this and I found that underflow was a valid concept in Sonic 1 and I was looking for all these levels to do it and there's heaps of levels where you can actually underflow. There's heaps of levels where you can break that left wall and come out the right wall. Problem is um, there's some issues with height. So if the level ends higher than you started, Sonic's just going to fall down and die when he comes out that right side. And some levels go on in their dimensions a lot further than the signpost at the end of the level. So for example, in Jungle 1, you can underflow. You can go off the left side of the screen in Jungle 1, but and you can be high enough that you would hit the signpost. But there's such a big gap between the, the furthest right in the level and the signpost that Sonic just falls down and dies. So, yeah, um, basically when I got to Labyrinth 2, I thought this underflow could be possible. So I tried it and I could get it with a lot of speed, but I couldn't get it. And at that point, I was still pretty bad at tazzing. I didn't have a RAM watch for my position because I didn't really understand like subpixels yet. And I didn't understand how to search for position well. So basically I wrote on the Taz videos forum, I'm like, this is really close. Can anyone get it? And then um, TNT, a pretty well-known Sonic Genesis Tazzer and RTA runner, um, they came into the forum and they're like, here you go. And they gave me a button file that had the Labyrinth Underflow. So I like to think that we basically like co-found that glitch because I said like, look, I've got this by setting my speed just a tiny bit higher. Could anyone help me actually pull this off for real? And then TNT obviously had a way better understanding of position and subpixels than I did. And then he like put those final pieces together and pulled it off. So if it wasn't for their help, like maybe I would have got it eventually. But at the same time, like I would have been stuck and maybe demotivated and not done the Taz. But like... It was crazy. It was the first thing that I'd really properly contributed to finding in a game. And it was huge. It's like a 40 second level. We skipped the whole thing. So that was crazy. And anyway, then um, I did that level, finished off the Taz. It's first Taz ever of the Master System version. I submitted it, it got published, it got moons, and I was happy. It was great. Um, and that Taz I sort of held up as like probably my best has I'd done East Galahad and Wonder Boy 3 before that those first three Tazzes that I'd done I haven't gone back and re-looked at them yet but they felt pretty optimal at the time especially Wonder Boy 3 but this Taz was like crazy and I did it and it was I was happy with it and then I sort of yeah that was my story of originally tazzing Sonic 1 on the Master System. And then came along this thing called the Diga project on Taz videos. And basically Diga is this really old Master System emulator, which is pretty inaccurate now. 
and pretty old-fashioned. Not many people run Diga anymore, and it's you're not you're not allowed to submit Tazas on it anymore. Basically, I think it was Alosha who set up the Diga project, if I remember correctly. But basically, they went through and they said, "Here's all the Diga Tazas. Can we get volunteers to obsolete these Tazas?" And so I was like, "Oh, I know heaps of those Master System games." So I put my name down for a bunch of games. Um, on there was Sonic Chaos, uh, Zillion, I still have my name down for, and it's on my to-do list, but I keep getting put off Zillion. Um, I think Sonic the Hedgehog 2 on the Master System, I'm actually working on right now with, um, Colin from one of the previous episodes, uh, Easy Game 69 is his screen name. Um, so we're working on Sonic 2 on the Master System now, that's part of the Diga project. But one of these games on the Diga project was Sonic 1 on the Game Gear by Grunt. And I was like, hold on. <laughs> I never thought I could obsolete like Grunt's Taz. But now that I've done Master System, why don't I give this a go with the Diga project? If I don't obsolete it, I could at least match it on a modern emulator that was good. So I picked up this Game Gear version. And Game Gear version, a lot of the stuff is transferable. Um, but... I was tazzing it, and I'm like, hold on, I'm saving time here. With all my experience from tazzing Sonic 1 on the Master System, it's just that optimization. I wasn't doing much different to Grunt, but I was squeezing out all those little subpixels and extra frames here and there and stuff like that. And there were a few new strats that I found, a few new routes, but overall it was pretty similar for the first bit of the game. And that could have also been emulator inaccuracies. And Grunt wouldn't have had Taz Studio. So for what they did at the time, it was a really amazing Taz. At the end of the day, it didn't have heaps of re-records though. So looking back on it, I should have known that considering they didn't have Taz Studio and there wasn't heaps of re-records, I may have been able to obsolete it with, you know, 2017, 18, 19 thinking. But I'd idolized that run for such a long time that I was thinking like, wow, I'm actually saving frames. So I went on and did it. And then I was just tazzing away, tazzing away. Uh, I think Jungle Zone came along and I'd found my first real big break in the Game Gear Taz in that I was like, whoa, I'm actually saving significant time over Escrun here. Because what had happened in Jungle Zone is that they had kept holding right with Sonic when they entered the water. And um, if you do that, you hit the water speed cap. But what you can do instead is be hitting the air speed cap. Then as soon as you hit water, just let go of your D-pad. And Sonic will just gradually slow down. And the air speed cap's 3.00. The water speed cap's 1.00. So you go a third the speed in the water, which is it's pretty crazy that I kept that. So that got me like almost a full second and I was like, whoa, I'm actually saving time. Like proper seconds over this Game Gear Taz. And then, um, you know, a few seconds in the level after that, which is probably a day of tazzing, my mind was blown even further because I discovered this other glitch and this glitch I'd call Spring Roll because you're rolling off springs. Um, basically what happens is when you jump onto a spring, you get this one frame where Sonic can do a roll. And then he bounces off the spring while he's rolling. And Sonic 
when he's rolling in the air, builds up a lot of speed. So this spring roll saved like two, three, or four seconds in Jungle 1, because this is upward spring. And it's like, wow, okay. It's great. But then I thought, hold on. There's a spring in Green Hill too. And I'm going to have to do a spring roll on this. So basically, when I found that glitch in Jungle 1, I went back to Green Hill 2. Jungle 1 being the, well, I guess it's the seventh level in the game. Green Hill 2 is the second. So I basically lost half the Taz because I found this glitch. But I went back and I did it. And I think in a few of those early levels, I'd save maybe one or two seconds over Esgrunt's Taz. But in Jungle 1, with the water thing and with the spring roll, I saved like heaps of time. Um, moving on. Uh, I basically got through the Taz and... It was so long ago now that I'm sure there were more significant strats that I found, but there was nothing that comes to mind immediately. So basically I finished that Taz and it got published, um, obsoleted Esgrunt's Taz, but I still idolized that Taz a lot because for the time that was an amazing run. So then I went quiet again. I didn't really touch Sonic 1 8-bit for a long time. Then... Now, I can't remember what order this happened in, but I started becoming interested in a category called Max Special Bonus. Um, so, in this game, remember, at the start of the podcast, I mentioned there's Chaos Emeralds. So, some people consider that to be 100% of the game. And I always had... I have this big list of games that I want to test. And on that list was always, like, Sonic 1 Master System, some kind of 100% category. So I thought, all emeralds, great. But then I thought, well, there's a hidden extra life in each level. And the game does keep track of whether you've got them. Because if you get all of them, it spawns an extra life in uh, the last zone. Which you otherwise can't get. And I thought, alright, all emeralds, all extra lives. And then I started thinking like, oh, what about score? I could do like a max score run or something. Because that would make sure I got all emeralds and lives. Because you get this special bonus at the end of the game for that. And I didn't have a great understanding of what this special bonus was. I just knew that you got more points if you got more lives and emeralds. But anyway, I think it was Mike89 did a run called Max Special Bonus. It turns out, in this game, there's a few requirements to get this thing called the Maximum Special Bonus, which is 500,000 points at the end of the game. You have to get all the emeralds, you have to get all the lives, you have to go to all the special stages. So there's 12 special stages, and you need 50 rings in a level to get to a special stage. And there are, sorry, there might not be 12. No, there's 8 special stages, I think. There's 2 in Green Hill, 2 in Bridge, 2 in Jungle, 2 in Labyrinth. So that's 8, yeah, that's 8 special stages. And you need 50 rings to get there. Basically, if you mess up any of these levels and you don't get 50 rings, you don't get another shot. Because there are there are 12 levels where it looks like you go to a special stage. But as soon as you pass Labyrinth Zone 2, which is like Zone 4 out of 6, then it won't let you go to any more special stages, even if you haven't done them all. So basically... On the first four zones, of the first two acts of each of those zones, you need 50 rings to go to a special stage. 
another requirement of max special bonus is that you beat all these special stages. And then the final requirement of max special bonus is that you don't die at all in the whole run. So that category became crazy for RTA because there were certain areas of the game where there'd be like a hidden extra life in like Labyrinth 3. There's a hidden extra life and it's behind these all these crazy spikes that are like all over the place. And you've got no rings because it's a boss level. And you got to do it without dying because if you die, you don't get your max special bonus. So what we actually did in RTA for a while was take a bubble in there just because they carry across levels. But yeah, so this category is crazy. Mike89 had the record. And basically what I did was I grinded out this category. And I'm pretty sure what I did was I did a lot of practice. So I had the... I had a few ROMs on my EverDrive that I basically hacked to make certain levels the first level. And so on my EverDrive on my Sega, I'd practice. So I'd boot up this ROM and it would be like, oh, um, Skybase is the first level. Or Labyrinth 1 or Labyrinth 2 is the first level. Something like that. So I'd practice max special bonus. And there was this Sonic Marathon coming up. I forget what it's called. But basically, I decided to be a part of that, so I'd stream my run, and it would be a race. Um, and we were doing max special bonus for some reason, because I don't know why they decided that, but we were doing max special bonus. And I thought, oh, wouldn't it be funny if I had, like, a really bad PB of max special bonus? And I did all this practice before the run, and then I got, like, this massive PB in the run. And, like, that's exactly what I did. I think I lost 30 seconds somewhere in the run. But apart from that, I did this race in this marathon and I got this huge PB. It was several minutes and it was actually the world record as well because I had managed to bop my KD9. Um, so yeah, that was that was pretty good because no one had really touched the category. I don't think it was even on, like there was no leaderboard for it yet on speedrun.com. So yeah, <laughs> I had the world record in that for a while. Since then, people have beaten me and people have taken it to crazy new heights, but um, the reason I bring up this category is because I actually then decided to make a Taz of the category. This Taz, there was a lot of ring routing. It was very difficult, and the special stages had some crazy stuff going on. But I won't touch on it too much. It was on the Master System, and I wouldn't mind going back to the Game Gear and doing a Game Gear Max special bonus one time. It was entertaining, and it was great, but there's nothing that I can really say on a podcast that will convey that. So I'd recommend just go and have a watch. But that went past. That task was done. It was submitted. I was happy with it. And I moved on. And I could tell when I did max special bonus, there were a few instances where I was like, oh, I think my original TAS on the master system was a little bit suboptimal. I even got this feeling when I was tasking the Game Gear version a bit. Nothing major, but a few little things. The biggest thing was, in Scrap Brain, there's these doors that if you get close enough to the doors, they'll open. And basically, like, I thought it was best to walk under the doors, because while Sonic does have a taller hitbox, um, rolling slows you down. So S Grunt's Taz rolled under the doors, and I did, like, one test of it, and because I sucked at Tazzing at that point, I was like, oh, this is slow. So I just walked under all the doors. In the Game Gear version, I found out it was better to roll under the doors, just like S-Grunt had done. 
because I understood the position then and I could actually check my position properly. And then I thought, well, that must just be a Game Gear thing. But when I got to doing Mac Special Bonus and I had programs like Scripthawk helping me, I, um, yeah, I realized that I messed up in that first has and that I should have been rolling under these scrap brain doors the whole time. Because rolling makes your hitbox so much shorter, uh, you get under the doors a lot earlier than you otherwise would have. And yes, rolling kills your speed a bit, but it's definitely worth it to get under the doors sooner. Um... So there were these little things that were telling me maybe I should revisit my original Master System any percent has. But nothing really was major yet, because I would have only saved like three or four seconds, and my TAS was a little bit over 15 minutes, so yes, it would have got me under 15 minutes, and that would have been great, but um, TASs take a long time to do, so I wasn't willing to take the plunge just yet. Until... A bunch of RTA runners, including myself, started getting this really weird glitch. And this glitch was the reason that I ended up redoing the Taz. And it's also the reason that I wanted to make this podcast episode. Because this glitch is really fascinating. And it on the surface, it doesn't seem that big. But there is some crazy stuff going on underneath it. And I think... If more people knew about how crazy this glitch was, then the Taz would probably get a lot more attention as well as the whole speed scene. Basically, um, and you can read about this in more depth as well as see the original runner's examples in my submission text for my, I forget what the exact time is, but it's 14 something on the master system. Uh, all right, basically what was happening is runners were walking along. This mainly happened in Labyrinth Zone. And all of a sudden, Sonic would just get this crazy speed boost to the left or to the right. Like massive. Huge. And Labyrinth, your speed is like 100 underwater. This was hitting speeds of like 6, 7, 8, 0, something like that. So almost two or three times your normal walking speed on air. And it would have been like seven or eight times your walking speed underwater. And there are a few more videos um, in Skybase Zone on the Game Gear. I think Greenalink had a video of basically this invisible spring. So in Skybase Zone, they were they landed on the flying platform and Sonic just got pushed off with this massive speed boost. And then furthermore, um, there was another video of a runner in Bridge Zone. And it was the auto-scroller, the Bridge 2. And they basically rolled across the bridge with all the falling bridge pieces. And then they got a spring effect that bounced them upwards. Like really high upwards. And that was just crazy. Because we, we'd seen left and right before. And it was like, because it was underwater, you slowed down quick. So we didn't think it was a huge deal. But getting bounced upwards like that, we're like, hold on, there's something going on here. So I collected like eight or nine clips of this glitch, but I could never recreate it, recreate it on emulator. Eventually I tried and I tried and I tried. And basically what happened was I used this bridge zone thing as a model. And I just tried rolling across this bridge with the falling pieces over and over with subtle minute differences. And it happened on BizHawk. So on emulator with a button file, I got the glitch. Sonic flew up into the air and we're like 
what, you're just on a bridge, why are you flying up into the air? And then I sat on it for maybe a few weeks, did not know what the heck was going on. And basically, like, it wasn't for a while until we figured out what was going on. Um, I figured out that you could use pausing to kind of manipulate whether or not it would happen. And that it had something to do with lag. But basically what cracked it was that Isotage, my brother, he started actually looking through the disassembly. And actually not only him, but Trezm, C-H-R-E-Z-M, and I-C-I-C-Y, and Isotage, my brother. Basically, the four of us just went to work looking at the code of the game, figuring out this glitch. And I also need to give a massive shout out to Croc, K-R-O-C, because they made a disassembly of the game. So we actually had the code to look through. Um, and it was just... So, these other people who are helping know a lot more about assembly code than I do. But basically what they did was they gave to me basically this chunk of code that they're like, here it is. This is what's happened. Like, this is where the glitch is happening in this chunk of code. And I'm like, okay, cool. So basically I, I had this chunk of code and I basically learned Z80 assembly to try and figure out what the heck this code was doing and why I was bouncing up. Uh, and I distinctly remember we had some course at uni and we had these seminars that went for like, I don't know how long they were. They were either half days or they may have even been full day seminars. And I just like sat there. I probably should have been listening to the lecture seminar thing, but I just had the code scribbled down on this piece of paper and I was going through it instruction by instruction trying to wrap my head around this assembly code and like just trying to figure out what it did. And it was maybe like 30 lines of assembly code, but I spent like, I think it was two full day seminars, just like drilling into this 30 lines of assembly code, figuring out what the heck it was doing. Now it was Isotage who basically figured out why the glitch was happening. Now what was happening is so the master system has its RAM divided up into these banks. I think there are 16 banks, if I remember correctly. Sorry, the ROM the ROM is divided up into banks. So, uh, so the ROM is the game cartridge, and basically you go, all right, which, which 16th of the game cartridge am I reading at this particular time? And depending on what you're reading, you, you obviously get different spots of the cartridge. Now, this bit of code, the first bit that it did was it swapped to this particular bank because uh, it wanted to read about the kind of like the collision data of the tiles in the level. There's this other thing that can happen and it's something to do with the animations, but it's basically called, no, sorry, something to do with the master system. It's called the interrupt. And the interrupt usually happens towards the end of a frame. So the game does all of its business. It calculates everything that's happening with Sonic. And then towards the end of the frame, it does this interrupt, which is sort of, I think it's something to do with drawing. Um, Isotage and all, all those people know a lot more about it. But basically, like the laggier your game gets, 
the longer it's going to take to run all this code that's happening in the game. And the closer this is going to get to clashing with the interrupt. So I sort of visualize it as the interrupt moving earlier in the frame, but I think it's all the other stuff getting pushed later in the frame. But basically what, what causes this glitch is this tiny little 30 block, 30 instruction line of code. If the interrupt happens in that code, so you've got to cause a really specific amount of lag. If the interrupt happens in that code, the interrupt actually swaps the bank to like a different bank. Um, it always swaps it to, I think it's bank two. So what your 30 line block of code does is it loads a particular bank, like depending on what the level is. And then the glitch is that you get the interrupt and it swaps it back to bank two. But then that 30 lines of code then continues after the interrupt happens. And it continues on as if it had its correct bank, but instead it's got bank two. And there are like three spots where it loads bank in the code. So technically this interrupt could happen in three different spots, but consistently, like for some reason, it only works in one of the spots. I don't know. But basically what happens is this code is the code, it doesn't determine what collision the tile has, but it determines if the tile has any special properties. So I've got the list up here. I can go through what some of the properties are. There's, so for example, like the first property is do nothing. It's a normal tile. Second property is spikes. They're going to hurt Sonic. Next one is that, um, one of the properties is like the bottom of a ramp that would flick you up after you've rolled off of it. Some of the properties are springs, which become very, very relevant. And that's what's been happening. Some are like conveyor belts, water, um, slime in labyrinth zone, bumpers from the special stages, falling bridge pieces, all this stuff. So it's not, not so much... Um, so they're not objects, but they're properties of the tiles. So yeah, this is what was happening in the glitch, is that you'd start this block of code, the interrupt would happen in the block of code where it's not supposed to happen. The bank gets swapped during the interrupt. The game doesn't realize this, so it tries to read from the wrong bank, and then it just pulls just nonsense code out of this bank. So you're probably on a normal tile, which is zero, zero, but it's probably pulled some other tile. So some other collision property. And then for example, it thinks that you're on a spring tile. So it bounces you up or left or right, depending on what number it's pulled. And yeah. So in the code of working this out, it actually kind of does some weird maths with kind of the incorrect data it's called and it meshes it together with what tile you're actually standing on at the moment in the level. And ROM is static, so it's not changing. So basically if I'm in labyrinth zone and this glitch happens on a particular tile of the level and the effect is that a spring hits me to the left, then whenever this glitch happens on any tile that looks like that in the level, I will always get a spring bounce to the left. That's essentially what happens here. So yeah, and 
Basically, I was redoing the Master System test, Sonic 1, and I used this glitch all over the place. So I think it, I got four uses out of it altogether. And that's actually quite a lot because you need a lot of lag to make this glitch work. And even if you get a lot of lag, chances are there are no tiles that you could be standing on that would give you a nice effect. Usually a nice effect is either an upward spring, because then you can roll off of it, or a sideways spring, because then like it would hit you to the right and you'd get heaps of speed. But there are four times. Um, first time we see it is in bridge one. So I get an upward spring and I'm rolling. So I get heaps of speed in the air and I finish the level super quickly. And if you watch the Taz there, I pause a little bit before it. So the music kind of stutters. Um, then it happens in Labyrinth 1 just to save a few frames. Happens in Labyrinth 3 to save heaps of time. And then it happens in Skybase 1. And yeah, all of them are either springs up, springs left or springs right. Now, I just can't stress how precise this glitch is. So, you get. So, what I was using to time it was a feature on Scripthawk, which we could look at how far apart in cycles was this block of code that has issues from the interrupt. And there were like. In a frame, you get tens of thousands of cycles. And this little window was probably only a few hundred cycles big. So basically for this glitch, I'm trying to create an amount of lag so specific that it's like within the thousandths of a frame of timing. So like probably an amount of lag specific to 0.00001 seconds or something like that. So it's an incredibly precise trick. And you just do tiny little movements with Sonic. You go back and forth. You experiment with the pause button. Uh, you experiment even um, because the button 1 and the button 2, they both jump in this game. But depending on whether you press 1 or 2 causes minutely different amounts of lag, like down to the cycle. And that can be used to set up this glitch. So it's incredibly precise. There's no way people are finding a setup for an RTA. It's, it's just crazy. And that's kind of like why these days I'm so passionate about this Taz. Because that glitch is just incredible. Another glitch that I found when I was redoing Master System is I got a slight variant on Spring Roll for the... Um, so on Game Gear, it's easy because you just jump onto a spring and you roll. But on Master System, you either have to roll onto a spring or you have to spring up, then come back down. And then when you come back down onto the spring, again, you can roll. So there's like sort of a version of Spring Roll or Master System, but it's not as good as the Game Gear one. But that improved a lot of time, like especially Labyrinth 3. And I think I use it in Green Hill 2 as well. And in Green Hill 2, I completely changed the route as well. But there's a lot of stuff over the Taz, but I've got a commentary, and so I won't go too much into each level. But one thing that I really want to cover before I wrap up this episode of the podcast is an extension of this bank error solidity type glitch. If you have a look at the table of things, so I said there's like spikes, slime, water springs, all that. 
There's one which are the teleporters in the game. And these are used sparingly. They're used in Scrap Brain 2. There's like, I think, three or four of these teleporters that either move your location or send you to a different room. And then there's one teleporter, which is right at the end of the game. And that sends you to the finishing cutscene. All of these have a solidity type ID value of OB. So the way it actually determines, so you step onto an OB tile. This is what the game does. It looks at your coordinates, your position. And then depending on your position, it'll do like whatever action it's going to do. Um, so there are no two teleporters in the game which have the same X and Y coordinates because that would mess with the code. Basically, though, what could happen is if you could get into... And, and it's not a precise position. It's like like your position to the accuracy of like a tile. So you have probably a, a square, probably like maybe four or nine Sonics big that you could stand on and have this work. So if you... So, all right, here's what you need. You need you need a lot of lag. You need the solidity type value glitch to give you the idea of 0B. Now, remember I said that when you're standing on a tile in a level, that tile will always give you the same value. So if it's bouncing you left with a spring, you will always get bounced to the left with a spring if you get this value. So you need to be on the tile location where this teleporter is. The tile needs to give you 0B, and you need to have enough lag to trigger the glitch. If that happened... It completes the level for you, and it makes it so that there are no bonus screens for the rest of the run. And, later on, it would skip some other levels, so I think some of the scrap brain levels get skipped. But basically, if you could get this in Green Hill 1, all that stuff that would be cut out saves you, I think, something like 5 minutes. Um, also, if we could get this in a longer level, like the two-minute auto-scroller of Bridge Zone 2, then it would finish that level for you, so it could save, like, another two minutes on top of that. That's, like, that's how insane this glitch is. Unfortunately, it doesn't happen in this game. And, but I have hope, because depending on, like, the layout of the ROM, you would get different effects like different like there are so many so much chaos with this glitch that between like master system even the game gear has two versions between the two versions on game gear like they only patched like a couple of glitches but because that the rom is a little bit shuffled around so between the two game gear versions there are totally different effects for this bank error glitch. Like, every tile does something different with this bank error glitch. So I checked Master System, I checked both Game Gear versions. I even went through and checked some of the prototypes and some of the BIOS ROMs. And I checked every level, went to the coordinates of that final teleporter, and I checked if this glitch would give you OB, which is what you need for the teleporter type. And it didn't. So that sucked. But I still have hope, because there may be variants of the glitch, there may be, like, ways that you can manipulate the tiles, stuff like that. 
the closest that I got was in Green Hill 1 on the Master System version. The tile that has these coordinates, sort of, theoretically, if the interrupt happened, you, you might remember I said there were kind of three spots theoretically where it could happen. Theoretically, if it happened in the middle spot, which has the tightest window, then that's an OB value. But for some reason, if it happens in the middle spot, then the glitch just fails. I don't know why. But yeah, so it's crazy close. There are some variants on this glitch which could potentially send you to like... There's one which is like, if you hit something that's like a Scrap Brain 2 teleporter, I forget exactly what happens, but... If, if you think about it, essentially, if you were to just hack one of the level layouts of this game and just make a, you know, little casual hack for fun or whatever, without knowing it, you could probably make this glitch possible accidentally just by changing the layout slightly of a level, which is incredible. And just what sucks about this glitch, though, is the coordinates where you would get the end of game warp are kind of in weird spots, so they're hard to reach. But one day, maybe, if we look hard enough and triple check every area, maybe this could happen. So, I think that'll be it for me, talking about Sonic 1. On this podcast, I'm really excited about it. It's a great Taz, and I did a commentary for it, and the commentary is a lot more coherent than what I'm saying now. So, I'd really recommend you check it out. So, it's like Sonic 1 Master System, it's the times 14 something... And I'd recommend my version on YouTube where I've commentated it. I also cut out the bonus screens because they're long and boring to watch. Only thing that sucks is the auto-scroller, but you get through it pretty quick. Well, you don't, but you can always skip it on the YouTube video or something. I do have some lag reduction strats in there too. But anyway, um, thanks for listening to this. And I was really excited about this to talk about all my nostalgia with the game as well. It's a really fantastic game, and if people like this episode, just me talking about my experiences. I've tazzed quite a few games, and I have a lot of really fond memories of growing up in the early 2000s, um, just in this sort of scene and community. So people are interested in hearing more about that sort of stuff. I'd love the feedback. And yeah, as always, thanks everyone for listening, and I'll see you next time.